Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 14, and we'll read down through verse 15 of the next chapter. So, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. I want us to start, we're going to look again at 1 Thessalonians today. So, let's look at what happened in Thessalonica, because over and over, in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says, remember, or you recall, how we lived when we were among you. So I want us to see what was going on when he says they were living in a certain way. So verse 14 of Acts 16, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. So this is a demon possessed girl who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, 
And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set before them, uh, set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, He went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. um, They were seeking to bring them out of the out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they, were, they went into the synagogue of the Jews Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God, we come to lay our praises before your throne the timeless throne.
always. You have been sovereign. Even before you're created, it is part of your perfection that you are king. And you are the only one qualified to be our king. Always you have been good and pure and trustworthy. You are faithful and true. And you are immeasurably worthy of all our trust, all our undivided allegiance. But God, how different you find us. As a race, humanity has preferred itself to you as if we could sustain ourselves even for a moment. As if any of us, regardless of how intellectually capable we are, no matter what our job, our health, no matter how moral and upstanding we may appear in other people's eyes, we are not a people that can sustain ourselves. We are completely dependent upon you, our creator. We turn our hearts to you this morning, not because we're the kind of people that are so smart that we know it's better for us, but because you have conquered us. You have shown us our need You've shown us the shame and the weight of every single expression of self-centeredness. And you have caused us to feel the heinousness, the seriousness, the filth of even the least of our crimes against you. We've hurt those that we love. We use everyone, even attempting to use you for us. And just when we would despair, you showed us your cross, that you In eternity past, with Son and Spirit, Father, you have designed the most astonishing display of justice and mercy. You have sent your Son to bear our sin, to take his people's shame, to have you turn your face away from him so that it could be turned to everyone who will repent and believe and come. So we come this morning to say that we owe you everything. And every Christian here this morning, like every Christian across this little world and every Christian down the ages, it is our heart's deepest desire to live for the one that died and rose again for us. So we pray that today you would receive from our grateful hearts all that you require. That you would be pleased with our childlike and imperfect but real response to your word. Teach us. Show us wonderful things from your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And not just here, but because of what you've said in scripture. Words like those that you said to Malachi when you told him that your name would be great. From east to west, all the earth would see your greatness. God, we pray wherever believers are gathered, you would meet them. That like a father, you would stoop down and turn their face toward you. And you would give them all they need to know and love And do your perfect will. And then God we pray. Use our very ordinary lives. In an extraordinary way. Show us who you are. But God 
show others through us this week as well. We ask it in his name because it's his kingdom and his power and his glory for unending ages. Amen. Well, I want us to look again at the theme of following Christ. If, um, if you just kind of back up from that theme and think of the big picture. This morning, you know, I was driving up to the church and the sun was rising and it just reminded me of that wonderful passage. Do you remember where John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, is told that his son would be the forerunner for the Messiah, John the Baptist? And when John is born, his father, who doubted things and was struck dumb, unable to speak until the child was born, when the child is born, and he writes on a, on a, on a plaque there, his name is to be John, God loosens his tongue And he says these wonderful things, not only about what John would do, but about what Christ would do. And one of the things he says is that Jesus is coming to be the sunrise from on high. That God has remembered his mercies. And that he would shine on people who live in one place, just one. A place of utter darkness, of despair confusion spiritually and he would guide their feet into the way of peace it isn't just that christ takes our sin upon him it isn't just that he provides a perfect righteousness to be imputed or placed upon our account it is that the rescue includes guiding our feet on this way of peace that he calls us to follow him and gives us everything we need to answer the call. Our eyes are on him. He's the attraction. There's an open book in our hands. It's the same book he had, plus much more. Our feet are on the same path of obedience that his feet walked, but there is something more. There is this issue of walking this path with an open book, heart and eyes toward him, feet on the very specific path of obedience, but we're walking arm in arm with other believers, particularly those that gather with us in a local church. That's not all that we walk with. We are connected to, you know, every Christian is connected with every other Christian through the ages and every Christian, whatever language they speak right now, wherever they live, But I want us to think again about how a church works. How is the church at the center of the spread of his kingdom? And last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians 1, where he talks about the message coming actively. The messengers coming, speaking and living in a very specific way. And that people are receptive. And something is occurring there. Not just when Paul preaches that we read about in Acts 17... And many are converted in spite of the persecution. But there are ongoing effects that Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians and says, because I continue to hear about this faith and this love and this hope, which is active, working, enduring. Well, I must, when I see that, I must be aware that it's the work of a living, sovereign 
loving God. Today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, particularly verse 1 through verse 13. Just hit the high points. And this chapter answers kind of a secondary question. In light of chapter 1, chapter 2, well, exactly how does it work when we are sharing God's truth with each other? How is it that that promotes the kind of life that someone would look at and think, There must be a living God who works in this particular group of people. Another way of asking this question is this. Using Paul's words from chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Is this church, is our work together, is our gathering this morning, is it in vain? Or is it not in vain? I want us to see what Paul says about a church that is not in vain. And obviously, that implies that if we're not careful, things could be in vain. Well, first, what's this whole issue of in vain? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in verse 1, after describing all the wonderful things that occurred when he came and preached there, how they received the word, how they followed Paul's pattern. And in following Paul's pattern, they were really following the pattern of Christ. And then from these changed lives, the gospel was spreading throughout the region. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this, for you yourselves know, and we're going to look at this later, but he constantly calls their memory into the courtroom and puts it on the witness stand. You know, You remember, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It might seem strange to us to ask the question, could our worship service this morning be in vain? Could our prayer meeting have been in vain? Will Wednesday night be in vain? As a whole, is this church in vain or is it not in vain? And the efforts that we make outside of these four walls, you know, to witness at work, to be a a living picture of Christ in some measure, and to speak on his behalf at school or in your home, are these things in vain or are they not in vain? The word vain is a word that means empty. Originally, the word meant empty-handed. So if you had a task, like you were to deliver something, and so you rush ahead and, you know, you jump in the car and you go to the house of whoever you're supposed to take it to. I do this all the time. I arrive at their house and I look and I realize I'm empty-handed. One time, Misty and I are so forgetful sometimes. One time, one of our cars was broken down And it could, I mean, it could drive, but it had a big problem. And so we had to take it to Tupelo, to the mechanic, to the, to the Nissan place. And so I say, okay, well, Misty, will you follow me over? Like I'll drive the car that works and, or you drive the car that works and I'll drive the car that's got a problem and we'll get it there. And then you can, you know, you can bring me home because we're going to drop the car off. And so we jump in the car and we drive the same car and we arrive in a car that works fine. And we get to the parking lot and we realize who has the car that doesn't work? Like, 
you know, how could we be so old already that we left the car back home? Empty-handed. I mean, if, you know, the men, as soon as you arrive at the, you know, at the, at the parking lot where, the, the, where all the cars are for sale, the salesmen rush out and, you know, talk to you. And we have to say, uh, we forgot something. We'll be right back. We didn't tell them we forgot our car, but empty-handed. But the word came to mean then with later use, it morphed into just meaning something, a task that was done, but for whatever reason, it ended up being worthless. It, it didn't accomplish its purpose, kind of a waste of time. So when Paul says to the church, you remember that when we came to you, Paul and his co-workers, and we brought the gospel to you, it was not in vain that we came. Not only did they bring the truth, but something occurred in Thessalonica with God at work that caused that whole event to accomplish the good that was intended. And it was not a purposeless waste of time. But I want to look at that phrase through Scripture to kind of give us a picture because it shows up in a lot of places. I'll give you one Old Testament example that I've mentioned many times, and then we'll jump over into, into some New Testament examples. And I'm going to read these quickly because of the sake of time. For the sake of time, let me just go through them. Isaiah 49. I've mentioned this to you before. It's the, it's the passage where Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah And after so many wonderful promises of what Christ would do as he brings justice to the world, the very next song or prophecy in that four-song series, the second one, which is chapter 49, we find Christ saying to the Father, I have labored or toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. I, the Messiah says to the Father, have poured myself out for these people, teaching and miracles and late nights and early mornings and praying. And at the end of it all, it looks like it's all purposeless. It appears not to be accomplishing what I've been sent to accomplish. Now, the Father has an answer for the Messiah. But I just give you that as as an example because what Paul's talking about, something being in vain. Even our Lord, to the Father, talked about this. Now, let me give you some statements from Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, it shows up a lot. Verse 1 and 2, verse 10, verse 14, verse 58. Let me read them. Paul says this, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So he's going to explain the gospel. Which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, Paul talking about what God did in calling him to be an apostle, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It had its impact. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. It's purposeless if Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Jump jump over to 2 Corinthians. You remember perhaps in chapter 6, Paul talks about being co-workers with God. He says this, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't let all the kindness and the truth that Paul's bringing them, don't let that produce nothing. Galatians chapter 2 and chapter 4 mention this. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes, It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them, to the apostles, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now, what he's talking about there is after Christ meets him in that vision on the the road to Damascus, and then he studies those three years and he begins to travel and bring the gospel. He hasn't actually gone and sat with any of the 12 disciples yet. And so he wants to do that as early as possible. So he heads there and he explains to them what he understands of the gospel to make sure that he is saying it the way it should be said, that he's got it right. And of course he did. If he had the wrong gospel, then all that preaching would have been in vain. Galatians 4 verse 11. I fear for you, he says to them, that perhaps I have labored over you in vain for nothing because they're wavering. What what if they just turn away from Christ? Well, then Paul's effort is in vain, it looks like. Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So the Philippians persevere, holding on to Christ and his word. And Paul says, on that great day, I will know that my work among you was not a waste of time. Now, let's jump again to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll stay there. In chapter 2, he says, our coming was not in vain. You know that. There's something about what happened when I was there that demonstrates it was not a waste of time. But chapter 3, verse 5 He says this. He's talking about wanting to come and visit them. And he says, for this reason, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, when we talk about labor together as believers here as a body or outside of the church as we speak on behalf of the Lord or pray or live. There are two different ways of thinking of that. Every verse that I just read speaks of it in the same way. It's the second category. Let me give you another category. All right. 
So the first category, which I do not believe that Paul is talking about in any of those verses or in 1 Thessalonians, is the sense of um, just between me and God. So you can live and witness and pray and speak the truth in a way that seems to have no beneficial impact on family, on close friends, children, spouse, parents, brother, sister, co-workers, church members that sit next to you. You've tried and tried. You've prayed. You've spoken. And it just seems that nothing ever good has come of it. Is it in vain? Well, in this first category, you and your God. No, not if God is pleased. In other words, it was not a waste of time. God will be honored. He will use that in the end. And so when we're thinking just the vertical sense, us and God, we can be very faithful. And God can say at the end, you know, that he is well pleased. And so that is not a waste of time between us and God. Think of men like Noah, who for, you know, a uh, hundred years, he's preaching to the culture around him and doesn't get one convert outside of his family. Would you say, Noah, what a waste of time. What a vain effort. No, the Lord was pleased. Think of Jeremiah, who because of the timing of his preaching, he, he's a prophet that pretty much weeps and speaks the truth and weeps and sees only rejection. Jeremiah doesn't have a full church. Was it in vain? Well, between Jeremiah and the Lord, certainly not. He pleased the Lord. Think of our Lord Jesus. The number of converts, it's, if that's how you measure the success of his ministry, the number of converts at the end of his three years, very small. Compare it to the first couple years in the book of Acts. And between him and his father, not one of those things, not one moment, not one prayer, not one word, not one effort, late night or early morning, was in vain because the father was perfectly pleased that the son did all the father's will. So between us and God, vertically, we can be very unbeneficial, apparently, very unhelpful in our efforts. It just doesn't produce the good we hoped it would, but it is not a waste of time between us and God. But the verses I read to you, and 1 Thessalonians 2 and chapter 3, are not just talking about the vertical, they're talking about the horizontal. Yes, God is pleased. Paul says, I did this to please God, not pleasing men. But when Paul talks about, I'm afraid it was in vain, he wasn't saying, I'm afraid I preached the wrong gospel. I'm afraid I didn't do it the right way. I'm afraid my life unraveled my words. And so God isn't pleased with what happened in Thessalonica. What he's talking about here and in Corinth and in Galatia and what Christ was talking about in Isaiah 49, this is the horizontal as well. Is our gathering together this morning going to be in vain? Maybe the Lord would be pleased with what's preached. But when it comes to us, is it going to have the impact 
Is it going to produce the crop that it's intended to produce? So that we can say, we did not meet together today in vain. It was not a waste of time. So we're not talking about just pleasing the Lord. We're talking about real benefit coming to people or to us. The issue of these great truths producing the crop they're intended to produce. So with that in mind, let's look at the elements that Paul gives us in verses 1 through 13. Verse 1 to 12, key elements if we are to be the kind of people who can be trusted with God's truth. And these are the kind of elements in the life of a person that God uses so that our efforts are not in vain. If we ignore these elements, if we ignore Paul's pattern and don't apply it to where we're at, then hoping that God will use us to help others and bring glory to his name is probably a pretty vain hope. So in verse 1 through verse 12, we have a number of elements that Paul mentions in his life. And then in verse 13, we have something that he mentions in the lives of the listeners. And both are required. If all you had was verse 1 through 12, God would be pleased. But if you didn't have verse 13, then the visit to Thessalonica is in vain. Well, none of these things that we're about to look at is limited to an apostle. Over and over, Paul in this letter says, we. Look at verse uh, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming was not in vain. Verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So, Do not read and see these basic elements in the life of Paul as a messenger. And do not say to yourself, that's for apostles. Because Paul says we, and there's only one apostle. The others are co-workers. Also, do not limit any of these principles, these key elements, in the kind of a life that God delights to use so that efforts are not in vain, do not limit these to particularly spiritual, significant-looking events, like a sermon. If I have to have a talk with one of my children, especially, you know, when they were younger, and so Misty and I talk, and I say, I'll, I'll talk to him about it. And so, you know, you take time to pray about it and think about how should I say this? How, how can I say it in a way they can understand it? I don't want to be too harsh. I don't want to indulge sin. God, I, I want to do it at the right time, the right words, the right amount, the right way. And you pray about it if you're handling it correctly. Just like I would for a sermon. God, I do want to say the right things. But I I don't want to just say Bible verses. I want to apply them in a way that's appropriate for us right now. How much, in what way do we say these things? It's not just formal teaching that we're talking about here. It's 
every opportunity the Christian has to speak or communicate with another person as a representative of God or to speak on behalf of God. So it could be from a pulpit. It could be a Sunday school class you're teaching. It could be a small group you're leading. But it could also be the lunch line when you're standing next to someone and they say, man, rough week this week. And they start to tell you. And it's so easy to drift over and say, man, poor you. You know, I mean, you feel for them. But if you're careful and prayerful, doesn't the Lord help you to see, you know, this is probably what should be said. And this is probably the way I should say it in order to help them walk with Christ. Every conversation around the lunch table today, every conversation going home from church, every email or group text you're involved in, when you are saying things, speaking as a Christian to other people about what God thinks or to encourage them or to comfort them, these principles apply to all those. I think especially for parents, how do we speak? How do mom and dad speak to each other? How do we speak to our kids? How can we do all that we can do by the grace of God to be people that can be trusted with the truth so that our conversations with our loved ones about Christ, about the Christian life, are not in vain? Well, let's look at what Paul says here quickly. Number one, in verse two, he mentions the fact that he has just come from Philippi with his co-workers and they were terribly treated. And when they arrived in Thessalonica, he does not alter in his boldness. He doesn't shift and do things differently. I just read Acts 16 and 17 to you. What he does in Philippi is the same thing he does in Thessalonica, and it's the same thing he does in Berea. In Philippi, the crowds are stirred up. They beat him. They throw him in jail. It's unjust. He is a Roman citizen, though he's a Jew. So they're terrified because they just ignored all the laws of Rome and mistreated a Roman citizen. When they bring him out and he goes to the next town, jealous Jews from Philippi follow him because they hear that people in Thessalonica are embracing the gospel. So they come and they stir up the mobs. He leaves there in the midst of great persecution. They tell Paul, we want you to leave. So he leaves, he goes to Berea. And the Bereans are listening and checking the scripture and coming back and listening again and checking the scripture. You know the account. But jealous Jews from Thessalonica after persecuting Christians in their hometown, they go to Berea and they stir up the crowds against Paul in Berea and he has to leave Berea. When you read chapter 16 in those three events, do you see Paul making major adjustments? No. Verse two, after we had suffered, been mistreated, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition in their town. Do you not feel the temptation at times as a Christian that especially if you have tried before at work, at home, 
with a spouse, with older sons and daughters, at church, you have tried to say things in the right way to do them good. And it has only made things, on the surface at least, worse. And so, you know, time passes and there's another opportunity and you think, I need to say something. And so you go to say something and you think, well, last time you said something, stuff just got worse. Are you going to lose all your confidence in the truth of God, in the Son of God? Paul does not become sheepish and shy, does not adjust his gospel. He says, we still boldly gave you what? God's gospel, the word of God. Not homespun wisdom with some Bible phrases added. Not even just Old Testament Bible verses that he hits them with. But how, knowing how to take the truths of the word of God and apply them appropriately in the way that God would have you to apply them. Even though you do risk what's happened before, things being made more difficult. What about us? Are you less bold in your confidence in the work of God through his word today than you were when you first became a believer? It's easy to, easy to drift into that. When you give people advice, are you more confident in your kind of homespun wisdom? So someone says, man, I don't know what to do. My marriage is this way. My kids are this way. My work is this way. And without being very careful, you just shoot off a bunch of your, your own ideas. Like, well, I just think it's this. You should just do this. And maybe you throw in a few religious phrases so it does appear Christian. Or do you just hit them with Bible verses? And then th they think, well, I don't know. How do I apply that? Do you say it in the right way? Do you say it in the right time? Do you say the right amount? If we have had a hard time in the past speaking to people on behalf of God and saying, I think you need to consider what Christ says or what God says here, and I think you need to consider, you know, have you considered this? Sometimes we say the things that are true, but we say them in a wrong way and we cause trouble because of our lack of wisdom, not, not because the people hate the truth of God. And if that's the case, if you don't have the right message or the right manner, method, then you should adjust. But if your conscience is clear before the Lord, and that's not an easy matter, but to go back to the Lord and say, I have highly offended so-and-so. Was it me, God? Was it the wrong timing? Was I impatient? Was I selfish? And I didn't want to pay the cost to pray and to wait and to make sure that what I'm saying is the right thing at the right time. If it's me, God, then forgive me and help me to be wise. But if your conscience is clear, the truths you shared were appropriate. The way you brought them, it was the right way. Then you don't have to adjust when other people are offended. Second, in verse 4, Paul talks about being guided by this 
realization that he has been trusted by God with these truths. Look at verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. In my Bible, in the New American Standard, this, let me read it again, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we, and I underline, just as we and so we. If you think about it, there are a couple of things that should guide every conversation that you're having if you're telling people what God thinks about things. One is the ultimate goal. Where are we headed? I mean, what's the goal of this conversation? We'll talk about that in verse 12, that we would walk worthy of God. So that's the ultimate goal. Now, there may be a lot of um, other aims in the conversation that are more, you know, right now, like comfort or clarity or encouragement or rebuke. But the ultimate goal is the same. I want to help my brother or sister walk worthy of the Lord. So knowing where you're headed does keep you on the path. But there is also, in a sense, there's like a fence running along down this path of being a person who can be trusted to speak on behalf of God. And the fence is this. In every conversation, just ask yourself, if God has entrusted me with his truth as a Christian, shouldn't I apply the truth in this situation in a way that is, you know, in harmony with God? Just as he trusted me, so I speak. Every conversation. Just as God has saved me and trusted me with truth, so I write this email in light of that. Just as he has saved me and trusted me, so I send that text. Just as he saved me and trusted me with truth, so I have the conversation with my child, with my spouse, with my next door neighbor, my coworkers, people at the church. Just as, even so. How you have been entrusted and who has entrusted you and what he's entrusted you with, his truth, his word, ought to guide how we speak to people. Now, there are so many things that kind of fall into that. And I want to give you them quickly. Many applications. So in verse 3 and verse 5 and 6, we find a number of applications. He says, we did not speak from error, okay? So since I've been trusted with the truth of God, then I want to be careful to make sure that I'm not misapplying or misunderstanding the word. Second, he talks about the motivation in verse 3 and 5 and 6. We don't have impure motives. We're not doing it because of greed, he says. Again, pride. We're not seeking glory from others, not from those people out there, not from the people in the church. We're not using flattery. We're not proud. At the end of verse 6, he says, um, we might have asserted our authority. And in the Greek, the picture's more, you know, it's more picturesque. He says, we don't throw our weight around. I'm an apostle, he says. I could have arrived and said, I am an apostle. And I, I demand that you treat me in a way that is appropriate to a messenger from Christ. 
but he never does that. Paul doesn't throw around his weight and demand that he be given the respect that he's due. Impure motives, greed, not for money, but using opportunities that we have to speak for God for our own gain rather than for the good of the people. It is so easy to do, so hard to spot. Do you, when you have a chance to speak to someone on behalf of Christ, a hurting Christian, confused, stumbling, drifting, a lost person, do you use that opportunity secretly so that so that they will recognize what a useful Christian you are? So that people will see that you have value as a Christian, that you are effective? If your deepest desire, if what gets you out of bed in the morning is you want to be a useful Christian that does great things for God, I think that you are on a slippery slope. Why not wake up and say, I want to love him with all my heart and soul and strength and my neighbor as myself. Now, that will include being a servant and being involved in their lives. But that frees me in my conversations from using that opportunity for people to like me better, for people to affirm me. It frees me just to give, even if I don't get anything back. If you say, I would never do that. I would never talk to someone about Christ so they would affirm me. One way that I see it is when for a, maybe with a person for a long spell or maybe in general, every time you reach out, it seems like you get no response back. So it's like they didn't even listen at all or they weren't helped. And then you begin to feel like, well, where's my value as a Christian? I'm not very effective. And you find that you've been using those opportunities for greed, for self. If you don't deal with that, then when the costly conversations come up, it's not the normal one. I mean, the costly ones with family members. And you're going to have to say something that is, you, you know, could be very costly. It, it could cost you their friendship of, of an adult child, of adult sons or daughters. It could cost you in your marriage. It could cost you with your parents. And you love them and you love God enough to say what should be said in the right way, in the right time. But you do that and you don't adjust it because the goal of the conversation is to do them good and not to use them to affirm you. If you are at the center of these conversations and your worth is on the line and you need the affirmation of people, you will certainly find yourself avoiding some conversations, jumping in where you really shouldn't be jumping in so that you can be significant, adjusting your message, Remember the words of Christ in John chapter 5? I do not receive glory from men. And Paul makes the same point here. I didn't flatter you. 
I didn't come to you with greed to get something from you. I didn't do this so you would give me honor. He goes on to talk about who he's pleasing. We did this, he says, not seeking glory from others. We did this to please God, not men. Paul talks about this in other places. In Galatians 1, he says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, like he did when he was a Pharisee, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So you do have to make a choice. Who do I ultimately please in this conversation, in this text, in this email? But I'm so glad that that is not Paul's final statement here because we would be tempted perhaps to go a little too far and to become harsh and indifferent and uncaring toward the people we're talking to as long as God is pleased because we give him truth. I meet many Christians who say, I just tell it the way it is and they can't take it. I have some preacher friends who are always unemployed and they are sure that it is because they are the only preachers in the United States telling it the way it is. And when you know them for very long, you think, well, it might be that, but it might also be that you're such a jerk in the way that you tell it the way it is that you do damage. Look at what Paul says after he talks about pleasing God. He mentions two simple pictures to explain this. One is the tender care of a nursing mother, and the other is the firm and solid love of a father. So, verse 7, But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Well, we want to please the Lord, and we don't set our sights on pleasing people so that they will affirm us. Great. Does that mean we have a right to be harsh, and we don't care if it helps people or not, as long as we're right? No. How does, it, how does a nursing mother treat the child? She's tender. She is always listening, always aware of the, of the infant's needs, always ready to meet those needs. She is sacrificial in her love. She wakes at all hours of the night because she hears the infant cry. She is often isolated from her friends, often sleepless and tired, often feeling forgotten and overlooked as she gives her life for the child. And Paul says, that is just the way we were when we showed up in Thessalonica. We have the truth. We were bold. We told you what God wanted us to tell you. But we were also like a tender-hearted mother when she's nursing an infant. So sacrificial. He goes on to describe, in verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become very dear to us. You remember the context in 
Acts. And it's spelled out more in 1st and then again in 2nd Thessalonians. But here it is. Paul shows up to a place that's never heard the gospel. He's not the pastor of a church accepting a salary. That's appropriate to do. But when you're bringing the gospel to a group of people that have never heard about Jesus of Nazareth, you don't show up and pass the offering plate and say, well, you pay me first, and then I'll tell you about this Jesus. So how do you not come and, and burden the people with the financial cost of having Paul? So Paul says, we worked day and night so that you could have the truth without being a burden to you. Early mornings, long days, into the night, Paul and his companions are working either at tent making to make enough money so that they can buy their own food. He didn't even let the Thessalonians pay for his food. Also, the Philippian church, he mentions, was sending gifts occasionally. So Christians supported him, but the people that he's bringing the gospel to, he would not let them do anything. He would not be a burden to them. He worked hard and sacrificially. What a strange picture. Here's a worker that comes to you to do what you need. Imagine, you know, an easy example, a carpenter or a plumber. You've got a leak and, you, you know, it's, the floor is covered in water. You turn off the water at the source. You call a plumber. He shows up. He comes in the middle of the night because it's bad. And, and he does all the work. And he says to you, no, I want to do this for free. I don't want to be a burden on you at all. You already have a mess. That would be a strange worker who does all the work and pays for it all himself. But that's the way Paul was for the sake of their souls, bringing them the gospel. Paul is like a tender mother. He stays up all night. He pays the cost so that the infant, who is unaware of how much it costs, is given what they need for life. Is that the way we are? When we speak with people, are we giving them the truth in a way that matches a tender-hearted nursing mother? Are we sacrificial? In verse 8, Paul says something so wonderful. He says, we gave you the gospel. Not just the gospel. We gave you our lives. In other words, they didn't draw the line, you know, and say, look, we're here on behalf of Christ and we'll stay up late, but don't come knock on the door at five in the morning or we'll get up early, but don't come here at 1 a.m. and ask me a question, you know. They don't draw lines and say, we're only going to give you this much. We'll give you the truth. But I mean, I have to have a life for the purpose of serving them. Paul says, we were glad to give you the truth and we were glad to give you our own lives. Why? Having so fond of affection, you became very dear to us. So we paid the price. And he says, we were well pleased to pay the price. We were glad. We were really happy to pay extra costs from our life so that you could have the truth. Have you ever thought that that is what has to happen with every conversation that we have? Now, the costs aren't always that way, but that has to be our attitude. I'm willing to pay the cost to bring the truth 
in the right way at the right time. You remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. He goes through all those, that list of how he's persecuted. He's, he's boxed in. He's confused. He's knocked down. But then, you know, he says, but, but God always provides a way and he gives a clarity. And even though I'm knocked down, I'm not killed. And then he says, so death works in us. The dying of Christ works in us. He says it twice. So that the life of Christ might be manifested in you. Self-sparing theologians. Church members who read the Puritans and then say, I don't give more than this. It's death to your efforts being not in vain. Well, Paul gives us these pictures, then he goes on and he gives us the next one. Not just the mother, but the father in verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So there's the tenderness of the nursing mother, not just a mother, but a mother when the child is so needy. And from the very beginning, each convert is treated as a as a good father would treat his child, exhorting, encouraging, imploring, comforting. The words kind of cover all the bases. There are times where we have to, we are admonishing or exhorting. We are pleading with people and there are strong words that are needed, but they come from love. And then there are other times where it's not strong words. It's comforting words that put courage into a person. And Paul says, we did this as a father. The next thing he says, and that's back in verse 10, is that as we were doing all of this, you know what kind of life we lived among you for your sake. Blameless lives, holy. We were separated to God. And you could see that in the little choices we made while we were living among you, even while we were suffering persecution. So we could say it this way. One of the key elements of our efforts as a church together or as we go out to this building, one of the key elements of, not, of it not being in vain is that we live in a way, we're, we're careful, not sinless, but in earnest, not to stay in sin. But we live in a way that we don't have to ask our closest friends and family and coworkers to listen, but please forget. So what I'm saying to you is true. It's right here from God. But I'm asking you not to remember last week. Don't remember the way I acted yesterday. Paul can say, we brought you the words that God gave us. Tender mother. The love of the father, of a father, yes. But I want you to remember how I acted. His life does not unravel the message. It gives weight to it. The final element is verse 12. 
All of those, verse 1 through 11, as wonderful as those are, his visit would be in vain. And every gathering we have at this church will be in vain. And every advice you give to the friend or to the, or to the spouse or to the sister, brother, parent, child will be in vain without, verse 12, the right goal. He said, we did this so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. In every conversation, super spiritual or not, every lunchtime, every Sunday school, every, every you know, opportunity at work, every email and text, when you're speaking on behalf of the Lord, when you're helping people to understand what does God say about this? The goal has to be that what you say, if embraced, that God would use that to help them to walk worthy of him. The word worthy doesn't mean that you've earned his love. It, it's, you remember the word means matching. So like clothes, you know, the suit coat and the suit pants match. They don't clash. The tie matches. The belt matches. On one side, you have a God who has brought you life and saved you and called you into his kingdom to live under his perfect rule now and forever, even to share in the splendor of his son. That's on one side. Now, what kind of life would match? A self-forgetful, satisfied, happy, obedient life? A humble life? Paul says all of this was so that you would walk in a manner matching the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Well, that, those are the elements in the life of a person who speaks for God and it's not in vain. What about the people that listen? Well, you think, we don't have time for that. Well, there's just one thing. Verse 13, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. When they listened to Paul, and it wasn't just that he quoted verse after verse. I mean, you know, he gives them the word of God and he explains it and he applies it. They are aware this is not just a, this Jew's ideas. These are, these are from God. And so we want to take them very seriously. Now you say, well... Who, who's that for? Well, it's for lost people, we think. So some of you continually reject what we say about Christ from the pulpit. You've got to listen differently. You've got to listen for your soul's sake to what God says in the scripture. And when it's explained appropriately, listen to it as the word of God to you. Well, that's true, but that's, is that all? Every believer, even when you're teaching I feel this way if I'm the one that's preaching. I have to be, at that same moment, a really good listener. 
What will I do with the things I'm teaching? What will I do with the things I'm hearing? What will I do with the advice that someone gives me? By now, it's not often that I sit in a lesson or get advice from a friend who's a Christian and they tell me things I've never studied before. But that doesn't matter. Sometimes it's just a reminder of things that I have studied before and the Lord sends the person to say it to you and you think that is so helpful right now. Perfect. It's just what I needed. And I want to realize this is God being kind to me. And I don't want to treat it as just someone else's opinion. Are you listening? Even if you're the teacher, but are you listening in such a way that it's not in vain? If you feel like, well, I don't know that we could do this. Well, think of it. At the end of this letter, Paul talks about where these Thessalonians will get what it takes to do just what we've been talking about. Verse 23 of the last chapter in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're all to be part of that, you know. Ephesians 4. They're all to be speaking the truth to each other in love and in the ways that we talked about. Then verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. It is the fact that a Christian, that a true church, is a thing that God is at work in that makes it possible. So we want to be careful, but the hope really is that God will, as we lean hard on him, give us everything we need to know what to say at the right time, in the right way, tenderly, firmly, and how to listen when people talk to us so that our gatherings are not in vain. I have one other application. How do, you know, is today going to be in vain? I don't think so. I don't think the little church here has had 23 years of empty efforts. I mean, God has been very kind to us. So it's not always easy to answer for the church as a whole. Well, maybe for you today will be in vain because you just think, yep, thanks, that was a long sermon, I'm out of here, you know. I did that a lot of years, you know, 20 years. Is this going to be in vain for you? But I do think it's a pretty simple question to answer in this way. You know that our gatherings are in vain. To you, for you. They don't, they don't accomplish what they're meant to do for you. They don't help you walk with the Lord and for his glory if you're not even here. In the summer, it happens every year, no matter what we say. So we've just quit saying it. You, we get so busy and vacations and things are, they're all appropriate. So please don't misunderstand me. And busyness, genuine busyness, and long hours at work, or sickness at home, there are times where you can't make the meeting, and that's understandable. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just we fill up our lives with stuff that's all about us and ours to the point that 
we begin to miss. And then reasons for missing last month become excuses this month. You know, you just get used to not being here. Chuck's been preaching and he's going to continue preaching through Philippians. Will it be in vain? Well, it will be in vain for you if you're not here. It's hard to imagine it will have the impact on you that God would intend. Prayer meetings, are they a waste of time? Well, they are a waste of time when, for you if you're not here. So be careful when we think about how God works and he uses our brothers and sisters, leaders, friends. Be careful not to make choices that would guarantee that the gathering Wednesday is in vain for you. Our God, we pray that you would work in such a way that at the end of our short lives, we would, by your grace, be able to look back and say that these days, these gatherings, these conversations in the lunch line were not in vain. Do it, Father, for your son's glory, we ask. Amen.